passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Today we are in 2 Samuel. We have a lot of fun today because these are going to be some great application, but I have to prepare you. This final chapter of Samuel has some very deep theology in it. And so I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of thinking. Thank you, Robert. He's always looking out for me. A little background for you. For those of you who have been here a while, you'll know this. If you're a newbie, this will be helpful for you. Uh, first and second, Samuel is a chronological story, but the chronological story of David ends in 2 Samuel chapter 20. The last four chapters are sort of a summary about David's life. And as I've told you in the past, they're put together in the form of a Hebrew inclusio, where the front half and the back half mirror each other, but just in reverse order. And this is what the inclusio looks like. Second uh, Samuel chapter 21, first 14 verses, talks about King Saul's sin that caused a famine. But if you look at the end, where we're going to be today, it's about King David's sin that caused a plague. And if you go in a little bit, you have it's a list of David's mighty men and their victories. But on the opposite side, in chapter 23, is another list of David's mighty men and their victories. And then in the center is David's praise to God for his faithfulness in the past, and David's praise to God for his faithfulness in the future. Now we're in the last part, chapter 24, which connects with chapter 21. And in chapter 21, David was dealing with the problem of God's wrath against sin. It was King Saul who had unjustly tried to genocide, we're talking Auschwitz, you know, Hitler, the whole Holocaust thing, an entire people group called the Gibeonites. It was a people group that Israel had actually historically sworn to protect, but King Saul was going to go in the opposite direction, trying to get rid of them. And as a result, the nation suffered through three years of famine because of God's wrath against the nation's sin. Here in chapter 24, we have God's wrath against sin once again. And David is going to try and figure out, again, how to deal with this problem of God's just wrath against his people for the sin they've committed. And David's not going to be too successful in solving it. He'll figure out a way to sort of suspend God's wrath, but not solve the problem of God's wrath. This book will end this morning with us needing a better king. If you look back on what David was able to do in First and Second Samuel, he was able to conquer all of the nation's enemies. All the people that were around him, the Philistines, the Amorites, he, he was able to conquer them. But here in the final chapter, we realize David couldn't conquer the biggest enemy of all. That was God and God's just wrath against his people for their sin. David was a good king, but as we've seen, he was also a flawed king. He had the problem of God's wrath against his own sin. So this book will close with a nation needing a better king than David could ever be. A king they needed a king who could conquer their ultimate enemy, which is God and his wrath against their sin. 
Folks, it points looking forward to Jesus, doesn't it? We have that better king, that son of David, who did conquer the ultimate enemy of all, which is God's just wrath against our sin by paying for it with his very life. Amen? So you see this book will end by pointing forward to Jesus. Uh, everything in this chapter is wrapped, is wrapped around this question about God's wrath against sin. So the first thing we're going to look at is this, uh, God's wrath against sin and numbering the people. And then we're going to look at God's wrath against sin and the plague on the nation. And God's wrath against sin, but it's also his mercy for sin. And then God's wrath against sin and his final atonement or paying for sin. So if you have your outlines, take them out. We're going to start on the top. I'm going to warn you this first point, and we're going to spend a fair amount of time in it because it has some really deep theology, but very, very practical stuff. It begins with this. The wrath of God led to a census of the people. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. We read that, but it probably doesn't jump out to us the significance of what we just read and the problems that instantly occur with, in this one verse. I'll begin to explain those to you. We'll start with some of the easy questions, and then we're going to get to the harder questions. Here's the first easy question. When did this occur? The answer is, we don't know. It occurred sometimes during David's reign as king. My guess, and that's all it is, is it occurred sometime after Absalom's rebellion. But it does say God's anger was roused against his people again. This problem of God's wrath has happened before. Oh, when did it happen before? I don't know for sure, but I guess it's what happened in 2 Samuel 21. Remember the corresponding opposite part of the inclusio? Uh, where they went through three years of famine? Next question. Why? Why was God now angry with the nation? Why is his wrath aroused? In 2 Samuel 21, we know why his wrath was aroused. It was because King Saul tried to genocide the Gibeonites. But here, we don't know the reason. It doesn't tell us the reason. And folks, that's actually okay. We don't need to know the reason God's wrath is aroused at this moment. We just need to know that his wrath was aroused at the moment. So we don't need to figure out the reason. We just need to know the problem. Next question. Well, why did God incite David against the people? God, in his wrath against the people's sin, it says incited David, his own leader, his own king, against his own people. That's a weird one, isn't it? David was a tool in the hands of God being used to discipline his own people for their rebellion and sin against him. 
Now we get to some mind-bending truth. And we're going to have a lot of mind-bending truth this morning. I put this as a bullet point in your outline so you would have that clear for when you go to your life groups tonight and you study through this more. One of the ways God disciplines a nation for rebellion against him is he gives them foolish leaders or he takes their wise leaders and allows them to make foolish choices. Now I know as soon as I say that, some of you are jumping to politics. Don't jump to politics. I think what we need to focus on is the way God works when he disciplines a nation. He does it oftentimes through the leader making foolish choices or unwise choices for the nation. Because folks, David, for the most part, is a good leader. Outside of the Bathsheba, Uriah incident, put that aside. He's a good leader, but yet God is inciting him to make foolish choices against his own people because God is disciplining his people. How? Through the leader. It's good for us to know that's the way God works. Verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, Number the people that I may know the number of the people. Dan is the far north, by the way. Beersheba is all the way in the south. So he's like, cover the whole entire country and tell many how many people there are. And that raises a question. Why? Why did David want to take the census? And the answer is, he says, because David wanted to know the number of the people. He wanted to know the size of his kingdom. He wanted to know the power of his kingdom, the strength of his kingdom. I want to know how big we are. In the next verse, we're going to meet Joab. And Joab, if you've been with us, you know, he usually looks at the world a little differently than David. Joab and David usually see things in quite the opposite way. And Joab is going to see things the opposite way as David once again. Except this time, I think David's wrong and Joab is right. Here we go. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God like add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still sees it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? So what was Joab's objection? Why, David, are you delighting in this thing? Why do you need to know this number? David, why is this a source of pride for you? What do you want, bragging rights? So you can know just how big we are and how powerful we are? Job says, who cares how big we are at this point? In fact, may God even make you even a hundred times bigger it really doesn't really matter, does it? And I think what Job is subtly saying to David, he's saying, David, stop trusting in the size of our military power. Stop trusting in the size of our nation, in the strength of our country. Because you know, it really doesn't matter. What God is here is the size of our God, not the size of our military. In fact, if you've been with us through First and Second Samuel, you know that David again and again found himself completely outmatched, completely outnumbered. But who gave him the victory? 
God gave him the victory again and again. And Job is saying to David, you know, your allegiance is starting to shift. Instead of trusting in your God, you're starting to say, hey, look how big my military is. Look how big my country is. That's my security for the future. Rather than God is my security for the future. And folks, I would say, don't we do the same thing? Maybe you keep watching that retirement account. You keep seeing that number go up. Not going up as fast as it used to, but hopefully it's still going up. And we say, you know, uh, look, I have a lot of treasure laid up for, for many years in the future. Things are going to be okay. Are you finding your security in your bank accounts or the God who holds the future? Maybe you went to the doctor recently and the doctor said to you, hey, your heart looks good, your lung looks good. You are like set for your age. You're looking great when it comes to health and fitness. You should be for years. So is the security for your future in your health and fitness, in your YMCA membership? Or is it in God who holds the future in his hands? What are we trusting in? Wealth, fitness, money, or God when it comes to the future? That's what Job is saying to David. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Here we see it wasn't just Joab that disagreed with David, but it was Joab and all the commanders of the army. A lot of people thought this was the wrong thing for David to do. But David, who was incited by God against them, wouldn't listen to anybody. Which, by the way, when everybody else around you is telling you you're making the wrong choice, probably you should rethink that choice. Now, what happens next is it tells us the route the census takers took. So let's read that. They crossed the Jordan and began from Arar and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. And then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. We read that and you go, that's great. I have no idea where they went. I have no idea what they did. I wish I had a map to show me. Voila, the map. Uh, this shows you the route they took. It's essentially a, a big circle around the nation. It took them about 10 months to come up with this. And then Joab gave his census report to David. Verse 9. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. So all of a sudden, we're starting to get a little bit of information of why David wants this census. He doesn't want to really know the number of people in the land. He wants to know the military capabilities of his nation. How many people are out there who can draw the sword? Who can go fight for me? 
essentially about 1.2 billion people, 1.2 billion men. That sounds impressive to me, doesn't it? Pretty nice number to boast about when you're at the cocktail party of some other kings, right? I've got about 1.2 billion. How about, how about you? You know, that's a little ego trip. But now begin some of the deeper questions. I warned you that we're coming. The first one is called the text critical question. Why does this census not match the one in First Chronicles? The same issue, the same census is talked about in First Chronicles, but the problem is there we get a different number. First Chronicles 21 verse 5. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. All in Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. Numbers are different. Now, some people like to use this. They say, this is proof positive that the Bible cannot be trusted, that the Bible actually contradicts itself. I'll show you. They can't even do their math right. Or is there a reason? You think there's a good explanation for what's going on here? Usually there is. Well, I did a little digging, and here's what I discovered. In 1 Chronicles 27, it lists the men in David's standing army. And it lists them out by tribes. So it's a long chapter. But, but then you add up the number of men who are in David's standing army by tribe, and it's 288,000 roughly 300,000 men. And all of a sudden, you start thinking about this. In 1 Chronicles, when it comes to the number of men, the 1.1 million, it takes the number of men who are available in a potential draft in Israel, which is 800,000, and adds to it the number of men already in the standing army, which is 300,000, giving you 1.1 million. So the Chronicles account doesn't just account the number of people in the potential draft, which is why you would take the census. He already knows the number of men in the army, right? And it adds the standing army to the potential draft army, where 2 Samuel doesn't. There is a slight difference. First uh, Chronicles says there's 470,000 men who could draw the sword in Judah, where Second Samuel 24 says there's 570,000 men who can draw the sword. Do you know why there's a difference? Did anybody learn they can speak in round numbers? It's called one is rounded off, the other one isn't rounded off. It's not a contradiction at all. So that's some explanation there. Let's move from a text-critical question to a theological question. This is a deep one. <clears throat> Why did God incite David to sin? God used David to work against his own people. God seems to be the one who incited David to take this census. Now, as far as David was concerned, it was David's idea, wasn't it? He thought this is what he wanted to do. Later on, he's going to say, man, how stupid could I be? Why did I make this foolish choice? But yet God, we find, is ultimately behind it. And here we find is where the tension gets interesting. 
the tension between how God works in the background of things with his secret will, yet how things get carried out on earth with us with God's clearly revealed will. And I put the definition between the secret will and God's revealed will in the outline so you'd have that. I'll, I'll read it to you. This is something called deep sovereignty. So you guys say, hey, we want to go deep theology? Here we go. Deep sovereignty. Deep sovereignty. This is the difference between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God is what the Bible tells us in the Bible about what we are to believe, do, and avoid. But the secret will of God is what God has decreed in eternity past to happen. To show you how the revealed will of God and the secret will of God are both true at the same time and they work together, let's talk about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for our sin. Was that God's plan to happen to Jesus? Has it been decreed in eternity blast? Or that it just happened by God, happened by chance, and God was surprised by it? What do you think? The Bible tells us that God's plan, even before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, was that his son, Jesus Christ, would die for our sins. That was decreed by God's secret will in eternity past. Look at this. We find it here. But the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without spot or blemish, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last time for the sake of you. Before the foundation of the world, God's secret will is that Jesus would die like a lamb without blemish, but it was carried out in space and time for you. So God's secret will um, was that Jesus would die for us. But here's another question. Do you think God's secret will and plans in eternity past were just for the death of Jesus? Or do you think God's secret will also involved you? The Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, God had not just planned for the death of Jesus, but he had planned for you. And he had planned to put you together with Jesus. That through Jesus, by being identified with Jesus, that you and I would literally become known as the most blessed beings in the entire universe because of what Jesus would do for us. Before you and I were even born, God had that secret plan. Before the world was created, God had that secret plan. And you say, really? Well, I can prove it to you. Just go right back to Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, that him is Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So when Jesus died on that cross, that was always God's plan before the foundation of the world. But when Jesus died on that cross, and the Romans killed Jesus, 
when he was an innocent man, were they guilty of murder for violating God's clearly revealed will? Yeah. When the Jews cried out, crucify him, crucify him, were they also guilty of murder for calling for the death of an innocent man? Even though in eternity past, this was God's secret will that this would happen, in his revealed will, you know, as the world unfolds, they were clearly doing what was wrong and they are guilty for it. Uh, here's an interesting way to see God's secret will and God's revealed will held in tension. It's Acts 2.23. Peter is preaching and he says this. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death was part of God's secret will. But then he turns around and says, but you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But you are guilty of murdering him. You see how those two are held in tension? God's plan is working in the background, but you are still guilty of killing him. You can see this tension between God's secret will and his revealed will and how this is going to be such an encouragement to us in the life of Joseph, in the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers sold him to be a slave in Egypt. Were his brothers guilty of terrible things against him? by selling their own flesh and blood brother as a slave? Was that sinful? Was it, yeah, was it sinful? Was it wrong? Yeah. yeah, thank you. But did God in his secret will have a plan to take the sinful choices of his brothers and turn that around on its head and use it to bring Joseph to Egypt and then raise him up to be second in command to Pharaoh to the saving of many lives even the lives of the very brothers who had betrayed him? Yes, that's exactly what God did. Look at Genesis verse 50, chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. You clearly violated God's revealed will. But here, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive today, as they are today. This is why, folks, I love Romans 8.28. Do you know Romans 8.28? Have you memorized Romans 8.28? If you have not memorized Romans 8.28, you have a homework assignment this week. It's right in your outline. It's a short verse, but it's a goodie. Very important. This is what it tells us. That no matter how people have sinned against you, and violated God's revealed will. No matter what evil things they have done to you, and even the evil things that have been done by you, that does not thwart God's good purposes for you as a Christian. God can take those things that have been done evil and wrong to you. And even the things that you regrettably have been done by you, he incorporates that all into his plan and it can achieve good through it. Just like he did in Joseph's life, he will do in your life. That's all because of the hope we have in God's secret will. It reads this, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, no matter what happens. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. And this is such an encouragement. I know people this morning who have been through some very difficult times in life. Some of you have had a spouse leave you and your heart is broken. Some of you have had people steal from you and you wrestle with bitterness. Others of you are wrestling with loneliness and all kinds of evil things that have either been done to you or you regrettably look back and have been done by you. But if you know Jesus Christ, he will take all of those things in his secret plan and secret will, he can take them and turn them on their head and use that for the good of his kingdom and the good of your life. So we never lose hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. So that's the difference between God's secret will and God's revealed will. So God, David was making some sinful choices in life, but God has a good plan here. Let's move to the next question. Who? Who incited David to sin? Well, that shouldn't be that hard. We just read it was God, wasn't it? Uh, here's where a text critical problem comes along and a couple other problems. If you read the parallel account in 1 Chronicles, it says somebody different incited David to sin. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Oh boy. That seems like a clear-cut contradiction. Either God did it or Satan did it, but it doesn't seem like both can do it, right? How does that work? They're like opposites. Well, here's the answer, at least what I can discern of it. Just so you know, Satan and God are not equals but opposites. God is large in charge of everything, right? Satan is a created being. Satan serves as a tool in God's hands. If you look at the book of Job, Satan cannot do anything unless God allows him to. So when God decides to incite David to number the people, which he'll realize later is a sinful, wrong choice, probably all given into his pride and ego, he does it by allowing Satan to test him, Satan to tempt him. He sort of re removes his little bit of restraining protection from David and allows Satan to harass him. Now, David is still fully responsible for his wrong choice because Satan gives in, or David gives into the temptation, while Satan tries to work on providing the temptation. Look how it says this in James chapter 1. <coughs> Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. It was David's pride that was luring him and enticing him to want to do this census so he could see how big the numbers are. And God allowed Satan to maybe uh, entice him and to like hold the bait in front of him but it was David, wasn't it, who bit it and who went after it. Similar situation we have with Job, wasn't it? God allowed Satan to ruin Job's life. Uh, 
the temptation was there for Job to turn away from God, but he passed the test. David failed the test. You see how that works? Which, as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of the Lord's Prayer. Remember this line? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That took on a new significance to me when I was thinking about this this week. God, I should be praying to you to protect me from the temptations of Satan that he wants to put into my life. Protect me like you had, been, had protected David and at this particular time, you chose to not protect David. Protect me because I don't want to make foolish and sinful choices. Now we get on to some more practical questions. Well, what's wrong with David's census? That sort of sounds like a problem. He's, God's allowed David to be incited to do a census, so what's the problem with that? In fact, there's even verses in Scripture that tell Israel how to properly do a census. Exodus chapter 30 gives instructions on how to take one. So what's wrong with this? I have two possible reasons, and by the way, I'm saying these are possible. I'm not 100% definitive, but I think they're likely. The first problem is the motive. David probably conducted the census out of pride. He wanted to see how big his army was. So well, maybe he needed to know the size of his army. Actually, he didn't. If you look at the section where it falls in 1 Chronicles, David at that point had finished defeating all of his enemies. He was large and in charge, no enemies around. And all of a sudden, he wanted to know just how big he'd become. What does that show you was most likely going on with no threats? Pride, ego, boasting factor. That's probably what's wrong. But there is another possible explanation. It may actually have been the method, the method by which he took the, the census. David may have neglected what's called the ransom payment. The instructions for taking a census in Exodus chapter 30 tell us this. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Now, we have no information that David took a ransom payment for every, from every single person for their life. Now, I don't know why you need to take a ransom payment for every single person for their life, but I do know it's in there. And I also know that when you don't take a ransom payment, what are the consequences? A plague. What is going to break out later in this chapter? A plague. Let's get to the second big question. The wrath of God led to a plague on the nation. Verse 10. But David's heart, it struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, you ever do that? When you do something, all of a sudden you stop like, what did I just do? What a complete fool. That was totally wrong. That's David. It took him 10 months to get there, you know, 10 months to get the plague done. 
Well, then he realized, this is all about my ego and my pride. This is not a good thing. And he goes to the Lord and he confesses to the Lord. And I, I think there's some good application here for us, folks. A Christian is not a perfect person, are they? They're a person that's a broken person. And when they see their sin, they confess it. And they go to the Lord asking for forgiveness from it. The Bible says this for us as Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. That when you sense your sin, God, and you call out and ask him to forgive you for your sin through Jesus, he will. But there's more going on in this particular situation. Remember, the sin is not just David numbering the people with his ego. That actually came about as a secondary cause. The real issue has to do with the people and whatever sin they did that we do not know what it is that incited God's wrath. Now we read this. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer to you, choose one of them that I may do it. Gad says, uh, David, there's some consequences here. You get to choose between curtain number one, curtain number two, or curtain number three. And this is not the price is right. You get to choose your consequences. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence, that's plague, in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Presumably the shorter periods of time in, results in increased severity of suffering. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hand of man. David actually doesn't really make a choice of one of those three. He just says this. One thing I have learned in my life, don't let me fall into the hand of a man. Let me fall into the hands of God because God is always merciful to sinners. Isn't that good? Do you know that? That God is merciful to sinners? That he almost never gives us what we deserve. Amen for that. He's kinder than other people. So here's God's answer. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. You notice how the punishment fits the crime? David was boasting in the size of his men, the size of his army, and the size of his people. And God in no time takes 70,000 people off the top, just like that. Isn't it easy for us to be pretty comfortable in the size of our bank accounts? Or pretty comfortable in our health? Pretty comfortable in this or pretty comfortable with that? But does God have a way? He can take those things away in just an instant, can't he? Oh, he certainly can. Be careful what you trust in besides God. God is the only one who is, a point, who is reliable. And it says here 
that 70,000 people happened from the morning until the appointed time. Now, what's the appointed time? We don't know, but I'll tell you this. It was less than three days. It doesn't say it was three days. It was less than three days. God was merciful. No, I know where your heart is at. You're saying, God, how could you do this? Send a plague on 70,000 innocent people and they die in almost no time at all. How could you kill 70,000 innocent people? Wait a minute here. Back up. What started this whole thing? Was it the innocence of the nation or God's wrath against the nation? The nation was not innocent. They were guilty. This was God's just wrath against sin. David's and his census was the secondary cause of this, not the primary cause of this. Your heart may say, 70,000 people? That sounds too severe. God, you're unfair. Oh, is it? Do you know what the people did to bring this about? I don't. You don't. But we do know God's character. Either God is fair or he gives us less than we deserve. He never ever punishes us more than we deserve. So when we see 70,000 people died in a plague in almost no time at all, that's far less than the nation deserves. It's not more than the nation deserves. Now we see more about God's mercy. The wrath of God led to the mercy of God. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among the people, it's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So you see here how God gives them less than he promised. That's mercy right there. The other thing I think is very important, just tuck this away in the back of your head. This happened by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. That's big. Let's continue. Well, why did God not destroy Jerusalem? Well, that's the place where David was. That's the place where the ark was. But that's also the place where the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite was. What could be possibly significant about that? We'll find out in a moment. Let's look at this from uh, the First Chronicles parallel to give a little information on it. It says, And David lifted his eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, with his hand, within his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Imagine literally seeing the angel of the Lord in judgment over the city of Jerusalem. Back to 2 Samuel. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And David thinks the nation is innocent. By the way, we know the nation is not innocent, but he thinks they're innocent. But here's the interesting point. David asked the Lord to take his life and to spare the nation's life. 
But God doesn't do that. Here's why. Because David is just as much under God's wrath as they are, isn't he? He cannot offer himself for their sin. David can't save the nation from the nation's greatest enemy, which is God himself. And God's fully just wrath against the nation's sin. Because David has God's just wrath against his own sin. The only thing he can do is temporarily cover the sin. That's the last part. The wrath of God led to atonement for sin. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. There is that important location again. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. What happens next is what we call the oriental bargaining system, where you've got to figure out the right price. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his faith to the ground. And Aruna said, well, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Oh, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. The temporary pause in the plague turned into a permanent end of the plague when David built an altar and offered oxen as burnt offerings to cover the people's sin. The last act in 2 Samuel is David building an altar to sacrifice animals to avert God's just wrath when David could seem to do nothing else to save the people or save himself from the greatest enemy of all, which was God and his just wrath against sin. Now here's where it gets interesting. Second Chronicles tells us a little more about the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Second Chronicles 3 verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. That location, first of all, is on Mount Moriah. Who was here when we studied the book of Genesis? When we studied Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham went up Mount Moriah, with his son Isaac, 
to sacrifice his son. And at the very last moment, God provided a ram caught in the thicket that died as a substitute for Isaac and his death. Here, a thousand years later, David offers sacrifices on the very same place that Abraham was going to slay his son, but a sacrifice was found. And David offers animals that are a sacrifice for the people's sin. And then David's son Solomon builds the temple on the very same location. When every year, every month, every week, and every day, animals were sacrificed to cover people's sin. But you come to the book of Hebrews, and it says, the blood of bulls and goats never paid for sin. All it did was temporarily cover sin. But a thousand years after David, a son of David, who had no sin of his own that needed to be paid for, he walked into that city. A son of David, who was of not just human worth, but of infinite worth, because he was also God in the flesh. He died, not in a place where there was just more covering for sin, but he died on, right next to it on the hill called Calvary, and he actually paid for our sin. And he took care of the problem that David could never solve, which was God's just wrath against his people and against himself. And he took care of it once and for all for you and for me. This book ends by pointing to the need for a better king. We have that better king. His name is Jesus. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Folks, it doesn't matter what you have done when you walked in this door. It doesn't matter how you have sinned. It doesn't matter what has been done to you or done by you. If you call out to Jesus, he will take care of the biggest problem in the world, which is God's just wrath against you and forgive you once and for all and forever. And you will become what is literally the most blessed being in the entire universe identified with Jesus, the better king. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this book of 2 Samuel. Thank you for how it ends with David not knowing how to solve this problem of the wrath of God, but being able to solve it by just covering it with the blood of animals. Thank you that we have you, Jesus Christ, the better king that is pointed forward to in this book who took care of the problem of our sin once and for all. May we live with gratitude to you, Jesus. May we live worshiping to you, Jesus. And may our identity be found only in you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.